Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Now, uh, last Sunday was Easter, but uh, the church historically has observed not just Easter, but a season of Easter, uh, which represents the 40 days that Jesus walked among people, revealed himself, his post-resurrection appearances, before his ascension, and we call that Eastertide. So technically, we're still in Eastertide season, the season of Easter, uh, the time where Christ was appearing to different people. And so uh, last week, we preached a sermon about the implications of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, and this sermon, uh, this, this Sunday, I want to preach, uh, talk to you about encountering the resurrection in Scripture. So let's, let's uh, read um, Luke chapter 24. Uh, and it's a little beefy, but I'm just going to read, I'm going to read most of the chapter. Um, I don't know that we have it up there. Um, so I'll just read it all. Uh, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last few days? And he said to them, What things? That's funny, Jesus played dumb. What things? What are you talking about? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, when, but, but, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since those things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels 
who said that he was alive, and some of those of us uh, who were with some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones. I'm going to focus on this passage, this text, this verse. Jesus responded, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's interesting. This whole time, they have no clue who he is. But their eyes are opened at this moment. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened, the, us, opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. How he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he said, that, said this to them, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, in other words, they were beside themselves, they couldn't believe it, they were so excited, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? I guess three days in the grave would make you kind of hungry. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them or in front of them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. God, now our Savior, we thank you for Jesus, and Lord, we worship you during this season of Eastertide while we contemplate the resurrection of the Son of God from the grave, and the victory over death, the victory over hell, and the victory over the grave, and the victory over sin accomplished on our behalf. We pray now, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and minds this morning that we might understand the words that we've read, and that we would be transformed by its truth, convicted and convinced of the word. 
And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we read the Bible, uh, we can realize that some of its stories are weird. Some of its uh, stories, some of its content is bizarre. A talking snake, animals of every species of their own accord gathering together in twos and going into a large ship, a Red Sea parting, the Red Sea parting to reveal dry ground for people to walk across, an iron axe head floating, people coming back from the dead, right? I think we can admit the Bible has some strange things in it, things that even Bible-believing Christians at times like us at times struggle to confidently assert to a world that is increasingly skeptical about the claims of the Bible, right? We can acknowledge that. We can own that. We believe these things, but it's hard sometimes to reconcile that with science and different things. Um, during and after the Enlightenment, it became popular to run the Bible through the scientific method to prove its claims. Whatever could be proven empirically stayed, and the things that could not be proven through the scientific method was relegated to, well, the writers of Scripture's artistic license. Um, and so there was what emerged is this removal from facts and the stories of Scripture maybe as things we value. So a fact-value split. And this created a skepticism even among many Christian, Orthodox Christian denominations. Most of the miraculous and supernatural stuff in some of these denominations and churches were discarded, but they wanted to keep Jesus. We love Jesus, we like Jesus, we think Jesus taught good things, was a good example, so let's keep Jesus, because he teaches us the way to serve God. And from this point of view, believing every word of Scripture wasn't necessary because the Bible, well, from this point of view, was just like a tapestry meant to illustrate God. All of the details aren't that important. Well, in the wake of this kind of skepticism of Scripture uh, emerged a battleground for belief. In the spirit of consistency, the skeptics, realized that you couldn't keep belief in God without a belief in Scripture. And they jettisoned both. This emerging atheism that exists in our culture now has been a long time in the making and started generations ago. And what we have as a result is a large swath of our culture that has completely jettisoned not just the supernatural things in the Bible, but all of Scripture because in the in the spirit of logical consistency, they realize, well, how can I say I don't believe in this without the other? And so the big question that looms over us today as Christians in the 21st century, being exposed to these supernatural and miraculous stories, is this. What did Jesus believe about Scripture? Some of those weird things I just mentioned a minute ago, right? Right? The snake in the garden, the Red Sea parting, Noah's Ark, all of it. What did Jesus believe about those things, right? Can we have the Jesus of Scripture 
without all of its miraculous supernatural claims? Well, returning to our scene here in Luke 24, there's this buzz on the first day of the week about the events that have just taken place in Jerusalem. And there's a report, right, that Jesus has risen from the dead because there's this empty tomb, but a lot of people still haven't seen Jesus. And Jesus appears disguised along this road. These two travelers are walking on the the road to the village Emmaus. And they're talking about the things that have happened in Jerusalem recently. And, you know, I don't know where Jesus came from, but he just kind of ran up on the trail with them. And he starts talking with them, and they don't recognize him. And as we read a minute ago, Jesus plays dumb and says, what are you guys talking about? He said, what, you know, are you the, are you the only one here in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have just happened? He says, what things? You got to love Jesus doing things like that, you know? What things? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, he's just, it's him, and he's risen from the dead, and, you know, he's playing coy with them. And they said about Jesus of Nazareth, a powerful prophet in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified. But we had hoped, disappointment here, we had really hoped that he was the one who was going to save our nation Israel. We hoped that he was going to be the one promised by the prophets. We hope the prophets were telling the truth. We hope that the scripture was true. We hope the Bible was real. We hope that the word of prophecy was authentic and came from God. We had hoped. And what's more, it's the third day since all these things took place, and some of our women amazed us with a report from the tomb that it was empty but they didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And when we went to the tomb, we found it just as the woman had said, but we didn't see Jesus. And what Jesus says next is telling because he doesn't give them explanations and hypotheticals. He doesn't say, you know, he's Jesus, right? He doesn't say, well, is it possible this could have happened? Is it possible that could have happened? You know, he's not trying to prod them and probe their intellect to get them to figure out maybe what really happened. Jesus' first response is to rebuke them for their unbelief of Scripture. He says in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus rebukes them and exhorts them to believe. See, for Jesus, the books of the Old Testament had divine authority. And during his ministry, he frequently would say, It is written. The scriptures say, It is written. Jesus himself not only knew the Bible, he quoted the Bible and frequently made allusions to Scripture. In essence, Jesus was saying, what's wrong with you? Don't you believe the Bible? 
Now, he could have just removed their blindness and said, look, it's me, Jesus. But he doesn't do that. And the reason why is because the first step in accepting the reality of Jesus' resurrection is this. To know, believe, and understand the Scriptures. Jesus links the reality and truth of his resurrection, the fact that he's risen from the dead, with confidence in Scripture. He is always calling people back to faith in Scripture, back to belief in the Bible, back to confidence in the Holy Scriptures, because Jesus understands that the Scriptures is the battleground for belief. It is in our day, and it was in his day. The Bible... The Holy Scriptures is the battleground for belief. Now you re may remember, um, if you've read the book of Luke or you know the parables, in Luke 16, uh, maybe you're familiar with the parable of um, the beggar Lazarus and the rich man. Some of you know this story. Now this is not Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother who died and Jesus raised from the dead. This is a parable about a beggar, and just for illustration's sake, He's given the name Lazarus. And in the peril, he begs at the gate of a rich man, and the dogs lick his sores, and he's neglected and ignored by this rich man. And he dies, and the rich man dies. And the, the way the parable goes is that the poor man was exalted to the bosom of Abraham in paradise, and the rich man opened his eyes where? Who knows the story? He opened his eyes in Sheol, in hell, in torment, and seeing afar... Abraham and Lazarus, across a great chasm, opens his eyes in torment with the recognition that, that God's word was true, so to speak, and says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus there, back from the dead, to warn my family, because I have five brothers, and I don't want them to enter into this torment. And... Abraham responds by saying, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent and turn to God. And Abraham responded, and this is the key. He said to him, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they won't hear the scriptures, it doesn't matter what you do. You could come back from the dead. And this makes the critical connection for us that the people that are persuaded and convinced and strengthened in their faith when they see Jesus are people who already believe the scriptures. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is grounded in Holy Scripture, verified by Scripture. But if the Word of God is not already living and active in someone's heart, they won't believe even if someone came back from the dead. And what's important for us to understand about the Bible, the entire Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, is the Word of God is part of God's ordinary means of grace to us. There's prayer, there's the sacraments, there's the fellowship with the saints. When we miss those things, we are missing out 
on God's means of grace, which are meant to build us up in our faith. And the scriptures, just like those other things, Acts 2.42, they continued regularly in the breaking of bread and in prayer and in the preaching of the word and in the sacraments. Those things are meant to build us up in our faith. And so the word of God is primarily how we grow in grace. The word of God is primarily how we think God's thoughts after him. Why? Because God meets us in the word. God meets us in scripture. We encounter the living God in the pages and in the letters and in the words of sacred and holy scripture. And in our culture right now, there is a crisis with the word of God because there are so many entertainments, so many things that distract us, right? And we're all guilty. The amount of time we, most of us spend on social media is, you know, abominable, right? You know, after, you know, two hours on Facebook, you're like, ah, what am I doing? You know, I've just wasted two hours, you know? Before you know it, you're watching like squirrels water ski. I mean, it's, it just happens. It's like, it sucks you in. And I almost feel like this is, you know, the, the devil's trick is not simply to tell us as believers that it's not true. It's just to distract us. And he's pretty successful at it in our culture today. Especially as Christians. See, as a preacher, my primary task is to get you week after week to believe the scriptures, to embrace them and to learn them and to know them by immersing yourselves in scripture because when you do that, you are transformed by it. This is what Jesus is pushing against with these two travelers. He's saying, if you would have believed the scriptures, you wouldn't be right now torn on whether our Jesus really rose from the dead. He says, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures say. In other words, it's not enough to say, I believe some of it, eh, but some of it I don't think is really true. Jesus militates against that in his words. He says, no. He says, you should have believed all that the scriptures say. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is powerful. It's like, it's like a medicine in us. You know, it, it gets rid of the free radicals and the poison and the, ba the bad bacteria. You know, it searches our hearts and our minds and our inner being and transforms us and changes us into the likeness and image of Jesus. And when we cut ourselves off from its healing power, we struggle, we're sick, we get ill. There's all kinds of problems that happen simply by not exposing ourselves and washing ourselves in the word of God. Do you not feel much excitement about your walk with Jesus? Well, what's your relationship to the word of God? I just think about it. How excited are you about your faith? How excited are you about Jesus? If you find that, meh, 
yeah, you believe, but, you know, maybe there is a famine in your life of the Word of God. Maybe there's a famine for the Word of God in your life. Do you read it? Do you expose yourself to it? Do you see it for the great treasure that it is? You know, men and women died to give us the Bible as we have it today. And one of the reasons that people knew Scripture so well centuries ago is because it was hidden for centuries during the medieval period. What happened was the Bible became the domain of the, uh, the clergy. And the reformers and people like that fought to recover the Bible in vulgar, the vulgar tongue, which means just whatever language of that people, whether it was German or French or Spanish or whatever it was. They fought to recover the Scriptures so that we could read the Scriptures. And back then, centuries ago, when they recovered the Scriptures, they learned the Bible. I mean, read a novel from 150 years ago. Read Moby Dick and, and look at how much scriptural language is in a fictional novel that's not even about the Bible because it was just the air people breathed because they valued the Word of God and people knew the Bible. I'm not giving you a guilt trip. I'm simply trying to say the Bible is a treasure God has given us. It's a treasure right in our midst that we neglect to feed on. You know, I mean, most of us have it right here. I mean, it's, it's, that's, how, that's how free, that's how accessible it is, and many of us go from Sunday to Sunday without ever looking at it. So Jesus' rebuke is that they had not read, believed, and embraced the Scriptures wasn't trying to guilt trip them like I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I'm trying to liberate you through the power of Scripture. And so the answer to our question that we asked a minute ago, what did Jesus believe about Scripture? Jesus believed the Bible. Jesus endorsed the Bible. And Jesus explained the Bible. In verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know how long that took, but I bet you it took a long time. And I can imagine as Jesus starts in Genesis and moves through the patriarchs and moves through the Exodus, and he starts revealing to them how all of scripture points to him. Yes, all of those weird stories. All of those things that seem obscure and bizarre to us today are pointing to Jesus. It says he revealed to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. You know, every time Jesus was asked to prove himself and his ministry, he pointed back to scripture. He told the Pharisees, if you believed Moses you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. John 5, 46. He said, I'm not going to prove myself to you. If you believe the Bible in your hands that you claim to believe, you'll believe what I say. If you believe the law and the prophets, you'll believe me. In other words, if you don't receive me, you don't receive anything God has to say. That's how important it was. That's how integrally it, uh, Jesus was connected to the Holy Scriptures. Because all of it was about him. And if you were reading it with the illumination of the Spirit and faith, when Jesus came along, you would recognize that he is its fulfillment. 
Now, why does God keep pointing us back to Scripture? Why does Jesus keep pointing us back to Scripture? Well, yes, it points to him. But one of the things that Jesus does, and one of the things that we ought to see, is that when we rely on the Word of God, it straightens out our epistemology. I'll explain what that means. Our epistemology is our theory of knowledge and where knowledge of God comes from. When the Bible is the foundation for knowledge, it's, it's the source for us. It's the starting point, right? Not logic, not human reason, not rationality. And you know something? All of those things are fine. We don't check our heads at the door just because we come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, God has given us those faculties of logic and reason and rationality, but those things can never be the final arbiter of truth because we're sinful. And Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what's logical today is tomorrow's foolishness. And even science is no infallible rule of truth. Scripture is. Scripture is self-attesting. It provides self-testimony of its inspiration and authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Catch that? All Scripture, just like Jesus said to the travelers on the road to Emmaus, you slow of heart to believe all that the Scriptures have said. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever given by the will of man. And your friends or your neighbors, or maybe you think, I think this may just be the writing of men. Well, 2 Peter tells us, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Though they were written by men, the scriptures are the words of God delivered to human beings by the power of the Spirit. I have a close friend in college ministry, and one of the more common retorts that he gets is um, from students he ministers to. Uh, he's, he's with um, crew at Mizzou, and he said that students will often say, um, I believe in Jesus, but I think the Bible's stories aren't really meant to be taken seriously. They're stories with a moral, and they have a purpose, but they're not factual. Now, what we might want to ask is, why does it matter? Why can't we just believe in Jesus? Why do we have to believe in the virgin birth, the crossing of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, etc.? Well, it becomes a matter at the end of the day of who gets to choose which parts you accept and which parts you reject, right? Because it ultimately becomes a matter of complete individual subjectivity where one person says, well, I believe two-thirds of it. The other person says, well, I believe, you know, one-tenth of it. And the other person says, well, I believe 90% of it. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. The Bible is not just a collection of fables, but a record of the mighty acts of God in history. And if those things didn't happen, if the creation of the cosmos didn't happen by God's hand, 
if the, the scene in the Garden of Eden didn't happen, if the ark didn't happen, if all of those things didn't happen, well, then Christ's atoning work didn't happen, and we're all lost. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then it's all true. You see the connection to the resurrection and Scripture? If Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus, who had utter and absolute confidence in the Scriptures, kept referring back to it, kept quoting it, supported and buttressed its reliability and truth, if he was who he says he was, and he actually rose from the dead, then you have to take it all. The whole thing. You have to eat the whole loaf, you know, as they say. We used to say that a lot when I grew up, you know, in the church I grew up in. You have to eat the whole loaf. You can't just take bits and pieces of it. See, the Bible is not a book of just interesting stories or unconnected tales. No, all of its colorful stories, all of its twists and turns, even the bizarre stuff, all of it points to Jesus Christ. In verse 44, Jesus says to them, These are the words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which was a way of saying the whole Bible at that time, all of it must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's the entire Hebrew Bible. You may say, well, it doesn't sound like it. What about the historical books? What about the poetry? Uh, the Hebrew Bible is referred to by Jewish people as the Tanakh, and that's because they put two vowels between the T, the N, and the K. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim. The law, the prophets, the writings. It means the whole thing. And in that one statement, Jesus essentially unpacks to them the historical reliability of all of the mighty acts of God from the very first pages of Genesis all the way up to his resurrection. Now, if we close right now, you would say, great, Old Testament, I'm on board. Not sure about the New Testament. Well, let me just give you six lines of testimony that gird up the historical reliability of the New Testament as well, because the New Testament is the record of Christ's life and ministry and the unpacking of what Christ said in the epistles and the book of Acts. So there are th six things, and they all start with an E. There is, first of all, early testimony. Almost all, um, if not all, of the New Testament documents were written prior to 70 A.D., which means that all of the New Testament was written very shortly after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, eyewitness testimony. About 140 details of the life of Christ and his resurrection which are listed in the Gospels and the book of Acts, are of such a nature that only people who were eyewitnesses could give and describe. This is not secondhand or thirdhand information about something you heard. These are specific, intricate details and sayings, places, times, events, and names that only people who were with Jesus and witnessed those things could have actually said. Third, embarrassing testimony. Right? Early testimony, eyewitness testimony, embarrassing testimony. You say, what's embarrassing testimony? All the embarrassing details of the New Testament. 
that if you were concocting a false narrative about someone that you wanted other people to worship and follow this new religion, you would leave out, right? Like in one place, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Jesus says, I have to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In another place, uh, the disciples are cowardly, right? That's not something you would say if it was a fake story. You would want to present yourself as being brave. The women are more courageous often than the disciples are. Jesus' trial and his crucifixion, all the women are there. The men are nowhere to be found, right? You wouldn't mention that. That's embarrassing. Even at the tomb, the women believe first. The men are skeptical. You wouldn't mention that. So there's third, embarrassing testimony. And the other, number four, is excruciating details. Many of the eyewitnesses died brutal deaths. They shared in some way Christ's own excruciating death when they could have saved themselves, right? People usually do not die for a lie. People die for the truth. And many of the apostles, in fact, all the apostles that we know except John, who we presume died a natural death, but after much torment, all the apostles died brutal and excruciating deaths because they refused to deny the reality of the risen Jesus. They would rather die than to not speak the truth of what they had witnessed, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They went to their deaths anyway. Number five, expected testimony. And that's what we've been talking about this whole sermon, which is all of the Old Testament prophecy that causes one to expect a Messiah like we have in the first century with Jesus. With the same characteristics Jesus had, Isaiah 53 is a perfect example. Expected testimony. The prediction of the suffering servant. And then finally, number six, extra-biblical testimony. There are about 10 non-Christian ancient sources with about, uh, within 150 years of Jesus' life. And when you take their brief references to Jesus and early Christianity, you have a storyline that is congruent with the New Testament. So you even have people who were outside corroborating events that they remember hearing about in Jerusalem and the ruckus that was caused by all of these people believing that someone had risen from the dead. So for those six reasons... I, early eyewitnesses, embarrassing testimony, excruciating uh, details, expected testimony, and extra-biblical testimony, we know that the New Testament is historically reliable. And put that with the confidence that Jesus had in the Old Testament, and what we have is an infallible and inerrant rule of faith and guide for life in the pages of Holy Scripture. I hope you have a renewed sense of the treasure that Scripture is for you. That this week, when you leave this building, this week you'll say to yourself, I'm going to read the Bible this week. And that sounds like a moralism, like, you know, be a better Christian and read the Bible. But actually, God has given it to us as a treasure to feed us and to cause us to grow in His knowledge and Think his thoughts after him. And the only question is, will you believe it? Will you embrace it? And will you, like Jesus, endorse it to others? Let's pray. God, our Father, now we, we thank you for the testimony of the Scriptures and that Jesus was so mindful 
to call us back to its truth, its veracity, and its historical reliability. That we can have confidence that the Bible is truly your word. We don't worship the Bible, but in the pages of Holy Scripture, we encounter the living God and the great mighty acts of history. Father God, let us be radically transformed by the knowledge that you long to speak to us in its pages. That we have a treasure and wealth and a well, a deep well of wisdom and truth to minister and heal our soul. Lord, let us drink from it regularly. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.